Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I really ask people to think about who they're centering. That's at the core of it. Why are you doing it? Right? Are you doing this to make yourself look good? Or are you doing this because you feel like it, it will make you look like a, a savior to a certain community? And a lot of times, if you really want to be the proper ally or what, what, what some people call an, an accomplice, is how can you use your privilege to center people that are marginalized <laughs> and dismantle in the background? So you've centered those people. People might not know you did anything. But you did something behind closed doors in the, in the background. This is the Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting location-independent entrepreneurs and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. I want to start off by inviting you to subscribe to the Maverick Show's Monday Minute email newsletter, so you can kick off each week with a super short newsletter that you can literally read in one minute. So there's no long articles, just three high value bullet points each Monday that I've put together for you that could include the best travel gear and gadgets I'm using or my favorite destinations and what to do there could be epic experiences and events I'm attending around the world that you could attend as well. Or it could be things to watch or quotes to ponder or travel hacks, could even be nomad communities to check out, etc. Basically, I'm going to distill down my ongoing learnings from 10 plus years of being a full-time digital nomad into three terse items of value that land in your inbox each Monday that you can consume in under 60 seconds. So if that sounds good to you, you can sign up at the maverickshow.com slash newsletter. Once again, that's the maverickshow.com slash newsletter. And now let's get into the episode. This is part two of my interview with Tayo Roxon. If you did not yet listen to part one, I highly recommend that you go back and do that first because it provides some very important context for this episode. That was episode number 255. If you have already listened to episode 255, then please enjoy the conclusion of my interview with Tayo Roxon. 
I also want to talk to you a little bit about your professional trajectory. Can you share a little bit about that since college, how your professional trajectory has gone, and maybe talking a little bit about your role as a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional? Yeah. So I went to school for the, you know, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. My mom wanted me to be a doctor, a typical Nigerian story. After taking some classes in pre-law, I realized I do like arguing and making cases, but it just wasn't something that was jiving with me. So I, I one of the classes we took was marketing and I fell in love with marketing. So I, I majored in business administration and marketing, and then I minored in French. Getting a job out of college was tough for me initially because I, I had applied to over 85 jobs and they all said no. You know, I remember... Some people would say they would send me no and I would call and they would hear me and they'd be like, oh, I didn't know you spoke English, you know, you know, because of my name. And I thought, wait, you wait, is that why you rejected me? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we thought we, you know, we were looking for English people. And I used to just go through several random things. And I thought Akintyre, which is my full name, is like, well, I don't know that there's a resume that says, you know, I'm competent in all these things. And so after 85 plus resignation, I... I basically begged a previous internship that I was I was in. You know, I'd interned at this software company and I said, look, I have a year to find a job or I'm off. And I think I did well for you as an intern. And, we, you know, do you have anything to offer? And so they had a sales position and I, I never even imagined myself being a salesperson, but, you know, it's a job. And so I got it. And then I needed to file for the H-1B, which is a lottery system in America. And, you know, there are only so many given each year and there are many more that apply to it. And so a number of factors play into that. And, you know, I wasn't sure I was going to get it, but luckily I got it. The only thing was I hated the job. <laughs> and, I, you know, I was in this position where you, you go through so much to just get this and then you made it through the lottery. And, and then you're asking yourself, you're not doing the job you wanted. You got through all this rejection, but at least you should be grateful that you're in the country. And I just remember just, just feeling like I had lost, <laughs> you know, because I, I felt like I had tried, you know, I really tried all these jobs. And then August 22, 2012, I, I, I got into this car accident and now it took my life away. And then it, it was, it was really the turning point because I, I was driving my, my Bergen Toyota Camry and I, I got into this part where the road merges into the highway. And then I was, as I was cruising my lane, my lane gets caught to half. And all of a sudden, I'm swerving out of the way so I don't get hit and I'm smashing into the left guard with one car, two cars, boo, boo, boo. And, you know, and I, I'm 22 at a time and I think I'm, you know, about to flip over this bridge and adrenaline runs in and I'm kicking through the door and I'm thinking this is the end. And I somehow managed to get out of that car and I was standing in the middle of the highway. There were two other cars hit and for some reason, nothing happened to me and car was totaled. And I really just took that as a, as a sign. And so I quit my job shortly after that. And then, you know, you, you have to have a plan. And so if you're not a citizen, it's either you get married, you go to school or you find another job. And so I decided I was going to come down in visa status and then um, go to school to get my MBA. New York City had always appealed to me. I figured I'll make New York City my campus. You know, I went to Fordham, for my MBA. And Fordham has this thing where Fordham, you know, Fordham is your school, New York City is your campus. That's the slogan. While I was there, I, I made a commitment that I would never put myself in a position the way I felt prior to the accident. And I, I felt like I was 
afraid of failure before the accident. And then after that, I was afraid of not achieving my potential. I, I dusted up some of the old books that I, I used to write my thoughts in. And, you know, I launched my website in 2012. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just figured out I needed to write and tell my story. And out of writing and telling stories, I found podcasting. And while I was in school, I, I launched my podcast, As Told by Nomads, in 2014 and was doing it in between classes. And for some reason, it, it really just kept getting in numbers. And I, this was early days of podcasting. I was covering people that grew up the same way I did. And then I, I was just finding my voice. And then eventually, when it came time for me to graduate, I, I just took a leap and I, I didn't know what it would be. I just said, I, I got to figure whatever this thing is out. And so, you know, uh, I just started taking all these odd jobs and trying to do, <laughs> develop my own frameworks and thoughts because I was starting to get listeners and they were telling me what they liked and what they wanted more of. And I thought, I think my skill set is really being able to be a bridge divider and really use my lived experience and, and you know, to help companies and individuals navigate that. And then eventually I was able to, to monetize it in a way as a consulting company and with speaking engagements and with uh, workshops. But it was, it was a long, windy road because I, I, I would try different things and sometimes the world wasn't ready for it and so it, it would fall. But then something would happen, right? So something like Trump would get elected, for example, and all of a sudden I get spikes. Like, yo, what everything you're writing about is so important. Or something even worse, right? That would happen would be the murder of another black man. And it, it, unfortunately, it would lead to all these things. And that is simultaneously triggering. And then, then it's like, yo, I got to get into action to make sure this doesn't happen again. And so it was a combination of those factors. And eventually I developed myself as a thought leader in the space of cultural competency. And then, um, you know, one thing led to another, one of the talks, you know, hit, and then here I am today. Can you talk a little bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion and the DEI space and some of the type of work that you do? Well, a lot of the work I do is going into different environments, it could be workplaces, it could be schools, it could be media environments to figure out the problems that are preventing people from being themselves fully. Right. This could be on the spectrum of race, you know, sexuality, anything, nationality, any of those things and a gender, gender identity, all these things. And when I explain it to people at its in its idealist form, it's really about creating a safe space for people to bring as much of themselves as they want to without experiencing punitive measures. A lot the, and, and that looks very different for different people. And in today's world, as more people get access to platforms that amplify their voices, it means that leaders need to be able to understand how to manage and navigate all those spaces. And so mistakes are inevitable, but what do you do after those mistakes? And then that's, that's my job, right? It's, 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 it's to either fix toxic environments or to help guide how to navigate those terrains. And yeah, you know, that's typically how I describe the space to, to people. How do you think about the relationship between the DEI work in the corporate world and the need to dismantle systems of oppression? I think we are at a pivotal time in history. And I think the pandemic highlighted that a lot. And I really sometimes think a lot of people have forgotten. It was a moment where the world stopped. A very few moments, if, if any that I've had that particular thing happen. And in that moment, right, there was the heightened fear 
just whoa, what's happening? And then there were there were moments of unity. And oftentimes in those moments of unity, it was because people could pause. They didn't have anything to do, and they were just just watching the same thing, like in horror, <laughs> or either the murder of George Floyd, or any like how you know what is how did we get here? And that is the connection I see with both. A lot of times in history, you and I we've just navigated how there are forgotten aspects of history. So when we don't mirror, we don't add social justice and DEI, what happens is people forget and they shift to the default. If the default is the history you learned in school, which wasn't complete, that means your brain has already accepted that as what is considered safe for you. And so you're busy with your day-to-day, you're busy with your, par- your parents, your, kid, your friend, whatever you're doing. Your brain is already going to work with what it has. You're not adding any information to it for your brain to then be malleable enough to add. And so your day-to-day is just accepting more toxic things. And we have such speed of information happening right now. People are creating platforms off whatever it is, positive things, negative things. And so whether it's the charisma of someone you like and you've just naturally gone through that, you're not doing the hard work, which you might have been forced to do during a moment like the pandemic where you really had to reflect because it was just you and your thoughts and nothing else was happening. And so that's what I battle against, honestly, where you get people to stop, reflect, and critically think through how their presence can harm someone, how their presence can help someone, and how they can ensure that they're not participating in perpetuating a narrative, which is the hardest thing for people to do as they get older. You know, when you're younger, you're more curious, but for some reason, a lot of us, when we get older, we, we, we just accept certain truths and we're not willing to unlearn. And to me, they're inextricably linked because I think as, the, as fast as the world is moving, many people are not going at that speed to unlearn the toxic elements and to pick up new things and then to create new systems and then to educate about those new systems, about the new information that we're gaining. And so that's the connection I see there. What is your assessment of what appears to be a rise in those neo-fascist views, a movement toward by an alarming percentage of American society, but also other countries as well, by the way, but a, a move towards authoritarian white nationalism, a move towards toxic masculinity, a move towards the bullying of vulnerable groups, whether we're talking about immigrants or transgender people. It seems like there is a move in that direction. What do you see as some of the uh, reasons why people are susceptible to that or allured by that or moving in that direction? And what are some of the disruptive things that can be done about that? I think it goes back to identity and the fear of loss of identity. I think a lot of people feel like when we bring up all these new, even though they're not new actually, but what is considered new pieces of information, they feel like you are forcing (laughs) your ideas on them. And the, the biggest irony for me is that a lot of people that feel that way have had their ideas be normalized for the most part, where they haven't had to face the, the concept of even any of that being questioned. And I always say, can you imagine how it's been for people that didn't have your lived experience who had to understand your way of living in order to survive? Now people have more voices and they feel more empowered and you feel this threat to your identity because you feel like you're 
the, the more I share, the people will move away from your views when it should be a both and in most cases. It's not an either or. Someone getting to express the full versions of themselves is an opportunity to learn and understand something that has, has, you know, has not been shared at all, as opposed to it being a threat to that. But humans, whenever you feel <laughs> like your safety is being compromised or your values are being threatened, I mean, we haven't reacted well throughout history. I mean, there are wars on the back of religions in the, you know, factions in the same religion, Protestants, Catholic, Catholicism, across religions, you know, Muslims and, and Christians. And that idea of people feeling like you're telling them how they should be is honestly what I think is at the root of these things. And then my response to that is, wait, who do you want to be? That's what I always tell people. Who, who do you want to be as a person? And do you feel like you are the best version of that self? Because if you want to be who you your best self is, I doubt it would sound <laughs> like anything you're saying. And I do it on, across all the sides here. I just don't think we're doing enough to critically think through what is really threatening an identity and what is expanding an identity. And I think that's where, why we're here today. There's, there are a lot of people that will tell you, you are, they, what they always say, end woke policies. Like the, the, the kids are be, being woke. You're going to turn our kids into this. You're going to turn our kids into that. And I always find examples of things that I grew up with. And I'm like, I didn't turn into, none of, you had stuff that you probably thought was, was horrible and you found your way to your value. And it had nothing to do with that, right? If it, and it's just an interesting misunderstanding of how creating safe spaces with people is a threat to the people that are already privileged, in my opinion. Now, there obviously, that's a nuance. There obviously nuances here. And then there are things we need to figure out how to communicate in moderation and ensure that we're not demonizing an entire side as well. But I, don't, I just don't think people are being honest with themselves about whether uh, their identities are as threatened as they think it is. Well, I also wonder how much of it is actually a misunderstanding versus how much of it is a perceived material self-interest in maintaining certain structures of power and equality. And when those structures of power and equality are perceived to be threatened and there could be a perceived lack of privilege, whether you're talking about heterosexual privileges or male privileges or white privileges or anything else, that there tends to be a re visceral response, which is actually oriented towards an effort to maintain those power structures as they are. So what I would say is, in addition to that, is there's also loss of a fear of loss of power and uh, privilege. And so privilege comes with power. And when you're so used to having things come with a certain privilege, and you see a demographic shift, for example, your fear <laughs> might be, they're coming to take it from me. So we must not let them understand. Now, that's, that's a very archaic, simplistic way of approaching something. <laughs> it's not about the table. It doesn't have to be like that. <laughs> you can expand it. And, and I feel like that's honestly, you hear it in the, in the politicians, right? You, you, need, you can say certain phrases that will trigger enough people's value systems that will remind them that it's either or. And then it becomes a crabs in the barrel system 
that they don't care about any other things. And I always see this with people that vote against their interests. You know, hey, your pockets, they're going to be less if you let this person win. If that person comes to your country, you're not going to have your job anymore, right? It, all these little things. And those are the bad actors, in my opinion. Now, the people, most of the people are in the middle, though. And I always encourage them, hey, have you critically thought through everything that's being said by this <laughs> person that you're saying? Like, you're the one that can elect said person. But you can't be so swayed, eat whatever side you're on. Again, I, I lean progressive. I'm just asking everybody, just think, is that really going to happen? <laughs> Seriously, is that really going to happen? Like, tell me how that's going to happen. And, and that's all I see people doing. There's a lot of lazy intellectualism happening, right? People know all the right words, the right buzzwords and right things, but they can't really tell you how and why it's really going to break down society because they haven't done the research. They just know what someone said <laughs> and why it's there. And then, you know, they'll back it up with certain ideology and sometimes. And that to me is the more dangerous thing, the decrease in the critical thinking of how we got here and why we just readily accept certain things that we feel as perceived threats to our power, our privilege, and identity. Well, I've really appreciated throughout your book and throughout all of your work, how you center the systemic analysis of power inequality and the entrenchment of that. And I did my master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. And one of the things that I noticed was that when you're looking at international political conflicts, right? Like take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as an example. It's a place that I've spent a lot of time. I've done a lot of Palestinian solidarity work over the last 25 years. But I went there for the first time in 1998 and have been back. But one of the things in studying political conflicts like that that you notice is that there is, first of all, an extreme level of power asymmetry. You have a settler colonial enterprise where you have one of the top 10 most powerful militaries in the world that has a full nuclear arsenal, literally colonizing a people that have no military and, you know, no state and institutions to defend themselves with, right? That's literally what you have. When you look at that and you look at the apparatus of Israeli apartheid, for example, and you look at the apparatus of settler colonialism, you look at the United States role in ostensibly being the colonial metropolis for Israel and so forth, and you observe that, and then you look at the peace paradigms that are put forward to address that conflict and who is supporting what types of peace paradigms. And one of the trends that I noticed is that to the extent that the dominant group in any conflict, right? That's one example, but you can apply this to any conflict. The high power group in any conflict I found has a material self-interest in reframing the conflict away from settler colonial power dynamics, for example, and into an interpersonal conflict of some kind, it's a religious conflict. It's an interpersonal conflict. We don't get along for this reason or that reason. It's a cultural conflict. The solution and what we should do is have our kids go to a camp together and play together in the summer so they can humanize each other. And then they just come back and one kid has military occupation forces still in his yard and the other kid 
doesn't, right? And the dominant groups typically push a conflict resolution framework or a peace paradigm framework that removes attention from the power asymmetry and reframes the conflict in a way that equalizes the two parties from a power perspective, thereby taking attention away from the systemic abuses of what's going on. And we could use all sorts of other examples as well. You look at the police situation in the United States and the state violence is going on right here or any number of other types of examples. And you find that dominant groups will tend to push reframing narratives like that. And then if you look at the nonprofits that work on these issues, the ones that will get the most funding, including from the United States government in many cases, will be, of course, the ones that do exactly that, right? Especially when the United States is involved as one of the conflict antagonists and as part of the, the conflict, right? So I'm curious from your perspective, when you do these different cross-cultural workshops, anti-bias workshops, and all of that other kind of stuff, how you think about that in conjunction with the need to dismantle oppressive power structures? I think about it all. I mean, as, as you highlighted, there's several distractions at play, but you, you can't solve a problem if you're not able to address how you got the problem, why the problem persists, and what is continuing to cause the problem. And in our global <laughs> landscape, there are many masks <laughs> that people will tell you, oh, it's this, it's really that, but it's this, it is not that, or it's all happening at the same time. And to me, it's it's the same way I approach intersectionalism, right? Which is a, a way people can look at themselves, right? People are multiple things at once. Many things are happening at the same time if it comes to problems, and there are many things that are happening at the same time when it comes to solutions, which means that we can't go into one problem, one solution, thinking it has to be one way without being willing to accept that another way might exist. And then when that way exists, being able to have that duplicity, uh, multiplicity rather, of mindset where we can say, okay, for this particular group, this was something we should do. For that particular group, this is something we should do. And that's how I approach everything. And it's, it's a very long, arduous process, as you can imagine, because you run into multiple deadlocks. And it's the only way it has to be, though. Because human beings are inherently complex and the problems we've created, however <laughs> divisive they may be and simple they may sometimes look like in solution, they're never easy in application. I, I do the same thing. I, I look at historical context. I look at the present day uh, consequences. I look at the modern day actors and look at the, the older actors and I look at our internal biases that get us there or even just thought patterns that lead us to creating all these systems. And I, I like to ask questions in my workshops and my consultancy is just, why are you doing this? How did you get here? What is your hope, right? I use all the, all the, you know, how, what, what, you know, everything. And I really want people to sit down with whatever their role is and how they're participating in that. And I, and I think if you ask the right amount of questions, that can be the difference between saving and ending I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes 
sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Lives. Yeah, and I think for me, it really comes down to just universal values and principles, right? In that my solidarity work that I do doesn't have to do with allegiance towards any particular ethnic or identity group. It has to do with social justice, regardless of which group in this context is being oppressed and which group is doing the oppressing. And oftentimes you'll have the same group that in one context or in one historical moment is being oppressed and in another historical context or another you know place in the world is doing the oppressing, right? And so you have those types of complexities that arise. And so for me, it's just sort of a straightforward matter of political principles. You know, when I started doing Palestinian solidarity work like 20 years ago, in the context of doing that activism, I got in a relationship with a Palestinian woman. And at the very beginning of that, relate, we're having conversations, you know, and all that, in the very early stages of that. And one of the questions I said to her was, I am not doing this activist work because I have some type of inherent allegiance to Palestinians as an ethnic group per se. I am doing this solidarity work because this is the right, just thing to do, given this current power arrangement in the situation that's happening. So I said, let me ask you this question. If the situation was reversed and all of a sudden the Palestinians had the one of the most powerful militaries in the world and the Israeli Jews had no military and the Palestinians were occupying and oppressing and abusing and colonizing the Israeli Jews, would you also be out here in the street demonstrating on behalf of the Israeli Jews if the power structure was, was reversed? Because I would be. And she's like, yeah, I would be. And I was like, cool, then we can do this relationship. But that was an important litmus test question, right? Are you doing this because it's quote unquote your group and it's in your group self-interest or are you doing this out of principle? And obviously for oppressed people, of course, it's both. But the question is, in terms of values, are these your values? And so for me, that's just kind of like how I approach it. And that's how, how I've always looked at situations and how I try to talk to other people about situations is just sort of abstracted out and just look at what are the political principles and values behind it, you know? Yeah. But you know, what's also interesting, a lot of times in this work, especially when I speak to anti-racism and it benefits everyone. <laughs> that is the, the thing that I, I often have when I'm really, 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 really angry, <laughs> a hard time just explaining sometimes it's, if you're doing this, you're helping everyone be better because the, type of pattern the least of that type of thinking is something that will be filtered out right you, you help someone understand how you're not going to create one standard that others someone or makes one better than another you will help someone think expand their idea of trying to understand what makes this group uh, feel like they're involved and this group feels like they're involved it helps in your business way it helps as a parent it helps as whatever you're doing <laughs> it will help that's what I'm always telling people. Yeah, yeah, you know, and what you're saying as well, but 
that's really how you get people to understand how to like, hey, maybe I should question myself. I don't know how did I get this thought. Just because I don't know this person doesn't mean this person is this way. That's bettering the society. <laughs> what are your thoughts about engagement with people that have, let's just call them regressive views? This is another thing that I think about, right? Because it strikes me that in many cases, it is really not a productive use of time or emotional energy, even for me, let alone, my gosh, for uh, someone from an oppressed group to take on the emotional labor of doing that. But even for me, it doesn't seem to be the best use of my time to engage with somebody if they are already deeply committed to maintaining an oppressive power structure. If they're already deeply committed to that, it seems to me it would be a better use of my time, and this is my political organizer background, a better use of my time to talk to people that are not already committed to maintaining oppressive power structures. They may be from the dominant group that could be moved into an organizing you know, framework or movement to help to dismantle those dominant power structures, as opposed to spending time dialoguing with people that are already committed to maintaining those power structures. But I'm curious about how you think about that, because I know a lot of your work does talk about sort of engaging with interrupting and, you know, the importance of some of that, and especially for dominant groups, right, to be doing that with other people from dominant groups. And so I'm curious how you think about that. No, I have my limits, right? <laughs> because you have to think about yourself when you're doing a lot of this work and your your energy. And I firmly believe that I work in between the extremes. And I think a lot of people influenced by the extremes to some to certain degrees. And I, I find that a lot of people, my work is focused on a lot of people in the middle who might have not critically thought through certain things. And my job is to help them, right? There are people, like you said, who might be far gone another way and it wouldn't be the right use of my time or energy to even, you know, focus on that. But there are kids from people, you know, that, that might adopt a certain mindset. There are people that look like me that might practice something that I feel like, you know, could lead to something that could hurt our community more. And those are the people I focus on. Because I know what it was like for me in my formative years. It brought up, you know, me glancing and looking at Nelson Mandela and then taking on his ideas and just listen to that. It could be someone else <laughs> doing something to someone else. And I'm always cognizant of that. I'm the oldest of three young men right now, right? And so we always mimicking all these things. And I take all those moments. So I don't spend a lot of time like, like you with people that, I, that are so set in their ways or are even just bad actors, honestly. That's what I call them, bad faith actors, rather. You're just committed to just disrupting for their own benefit. Yeah, I don't think it's it's a successful approach for me. I know there's some people that do that. So for people that are good faith actors and want to support and do the right thing, I want you to share a little bit about a, a concept that I've heard you talk about, which is the important distinction between allyship and the savior complex and how we can best stand in solidarity and support vulnerable communities that are being targeted. So when I think about allyship and saving complex, I, I really ask people to think about who they're centering. That, that's at the core of it. Why are you doing it? All right? Are, are you doing this to make yourself look good? 
Or are you doing this because you feel like it, it will make you look like a, a savior to a certain community? And a lot of times, if you really want to be the proper ally or what, what, what some people call an, an accomplice, is how can you use your privilege to center people that are marginalized <laughs> and dismantle on the background? So you've centered those people. People might not know you did anything, but you did something behind closed doors in the, in the background. A savior compass could be you wanted to see like, you know, it was me. People that like to take pictures of themselves going to all these countries with kids that might be malnourished and then put in the, the pictures on the Instagram and, and like, well, why are you putting a picture on Instagram? Are, are they your kids? No, no, I just, but then why? Why did you put the, the kids, right? The, the optics of that. And you, well, I was there and I donated all these things. You could have done that in the background uh, or you could have used that moment of education to really work with some system that is participating in and making it harder for people's lives. And it's really about that one question. Am I centering myself here or am I centering the right person or right people rather? And then if you ask yourself that, you'll be able to be the best type of ally you can be. Tayo, I also want to talk about your podcast, As Told by Nomads. I am a listener. I am a fan. But for people that have never heard of your show, this is their first introduction to it. What can they expect from the show? What are you up to? So thank you. I really appreciate that. And the show has been a, a longstanding show I, since 2014. And I, I try to put as, as many emphasis as I can because it's sometimes life can get in the way. But it covers change makers, leaders people from different backgrounds who are committed to sharing new ideas, solving problems, and just being positive members of the society. So you you find a lot of authors, a lot of books, a lot of things like we discussed today. Sometimes it's a solo episode for me. But I, I just, you know, I initially called it as told by nomads because when I started the podcast, I was literally bringing on people that were nomads. And then it quickly evolved into this thing where it, Nomad became just a mindset. And so how you you really um, focus on using your difference to make a difference, like I like to say. And so that's what it is. Just interesting conversations, kind of like what you're, you're hearing today. And hopefully it moves the needle forward in, a, in anybody's uh, social justice idea or entrepreneurship mindset. Well, it's really particularly substantive, which is one of the things that stands out about it for me. And it integrates a lot of these different themes of travel and entrepreneurship with being rooted in social justice. And you bring on fascinating people, really smart, really substantive. So I am a big fan of the show. We're definitely going to link that up in the show notes so that folks can check it out. One of the things I find when I'm hosting the podcast is that I learn a lot from my guests. And I want to ask you, Tyo, just reflecting back on all the people that have been on your show, does anything come to mind or a couple things come to mind in terms of lessons that you've learned specifically from your guests? I think I'm often just reminded of the power of our mind. I think, you know, obviously we're, we're all animals, but the thing that separates us is the power of our imagination. Like I bring all these people who are so smart. They're, they're creating concepts. They're able to see patterns where people don't see patterns. And it's a, it's a humbling moment because it just reminds me of the endless potential that many of us have. And sometimes it makes me sad because I think people have created this idea that we're limited, right? Again, some of these systems. And so that's the, the prevailing lesson is like, as humans, we are 
limitless in our potential. And the vision of, uh, of ourselves and the world that we can see is really up to how much we want to expand our minds. And so I am always learning that lesson with anyone that I, I bring on the podcast as they share their thought process. Well, I also want to put people onto West Africa and Nigeria in particular. I mean, West Africa is a region that has really won my heart. I went for the first time in 2019, I was there for about three months in the region, spent a month in Lagos and went through the Ivory Coast, Ghana, Senegal. And then I went back, I mean, the pandemic happened. So then I went back just this past year in 2022, spent another few months there. And it is just a truly extraordinary, spectacular region. I, and I'm ready to plan my next trip to go back again. Can you share a little bit about your recommendations for Nigeria and, you know, for folks that want to spend some time there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a Lagos boy, so so I'm, I always tell people to go to Lagos. Lagos is, think of Lagos as the New York City, right? The equivalent, right? They're, they're the, and Abuja is the capital, so Abuja will be like the D.C. Both cities, one is tamer and one is, you know, bustling, traffic, you know, loud, different cultures, different things. And so I think even though... Lagos can have a very, very hustle, hustle, hustle personality. There are parts of Lagos, though, that you can you can go, right? We've got a mainland, got an island, right? You know, several islands, actually. And you can just, you know, decide the day. I always encourage people to go to, there's a market called Tedrosho. All right, you can go to, go, go to a local market, but Tedrosho is one of those markets. And the reason I want you to go to the markets is you get to really see people around food, <laughs> sometimes you're haggling for prices, but just just really getting food from the source. And I don't know why, it just always brings a smile to my face because not only is the food de- delicious, but you're just seeing how people rise <laughs> in, in the morning and really go about their day to put food in the mouths of the rest of the city. And I think that is one of the most humbling things to, to, to see just because food is one of the greatest connectors in the world. And then if you're ever able to catch a concert, there are endless musical acts that come to Nigeria, Ghana, different parts of West Africa around the December period. And if you can catch a ticket, you'll be able to have a good time in your life. I remember seeing Rick Ross in Lagos with like his first album. And I, I didn't even know who, you know who he was at the time, but he was just like, we got tickets. And so we went to go see it. And, I, and that that's the type of experience you can always have if you go to Lagos. So I would encourage you to do that. Yeah, I was in Ghana last year for a Dutty December where they had the music festivals and it was un. Believable. Burna Boy was the headline, but they had all the rest of the folks too. I mean, my whole playlist, everybody showed up there. It was unbelievable. I mean, tens of thousands of people come from all over the world. And what was so amazing too, it was like, it was interesting because I've been there in the off season, if you will, like the non-tourist season, which is still unbelievable. I mean, I was in Accra in July and they're having parties on Labadi Beach with 5,000 people and DJs lining the beach. And that's not the tourist season. And people were like, you got to come back in December. I was like, okay. So then I come back in December and it was a different vibe because it was probably 
50% international, at least I would say, but it was very cool because the DJs knew exactly where everybody was from and they would shout out Atlanta and New York, but then they would shout out Lagos and they would shout out Johannesburg and like all, all this stuff. So it was a really, really amazing special time. And for folks that don't know about Nigeria, I mean, this is the mecca of sub-Saharan African music, art, film, culture. I mean, they call it Nollywood, the film industry there. I mean, this is really incredibly rich in all of those areas. And oh, another thing that I would put people onto in Lagos is the Nikkei Art Gallery. Yes. I, look, look at you. You 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 went to the spots. There, there, yeah, there are many, 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 many things. I mean, look, I'm a very proud Nigerian. So you, you, you're going to hear me say we're number one in, in every one of those categories. So, but yes, rich in culture, rich in food, rich in just fashion, even, you know, music, movies, art, everything that you can think of. It's super, super special place. So definitely want to encourage people to check it out. Tayo, let me ask you one more question and then we'll wrap this up and move into the lightning round. When you think back about all of your travels and the impact that it's had on you that we've been talking about today, why do you continue to travel at this point in your life? What does travel mean to you today? Travel is, to me is about self-discovery. I, I realize every time I travel that I don't know anything. Or I know very little, right? There's always something, even if it's even going back to the same place, going back home for me to Nigeria, it's always just picking up on something. It's always a new build. It's always a new idea. But there are very few things in life that humble you enough <laughs> for you to really do enough research to see if you need to do this to fit in here or to fit out there or to fight against this and to do that. And it's also just, it's another way for me to expand my mind. I would like to practice what I preach and everyone is susceptible to accepting ideas and not wanting to grow. And so it challenges me, especially when I'm in an uncomfortable situation. So I love that. And then there's the you know exploration aspect of it, which is also fun. All right, Tayo, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Absolutely. <laughs> the lightning round. All right. We're starting off with a banger. Which country has better jollof, Nigeria or Ghana? Uh, every other thing that is not Nigeria is poison. So it's, uh, it's, it's Nigeria. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Can you explain to people that are not familiar with jollof rice what it is and why this <laughs> rivalry is so significant? By the way, before you talk about the rivalry, let me just say that I've spent now three months in Dakar, Senegal. And Senegal is actually where jollof rice originated. And yet... They don't really participate in the Jalof Wars. They just let Nigeria and Ghana duke it out. Look, they might have been the originators, but we we perfected it. So, so, so for basically, Jalof rice is like a, is a rice dish, right? It, it includes tomatoes, chilies, onions, different spices. You, you can add it with meat, with plantains. There are different ways. To make it, especially, you know, in West Africa, it, the modifications are there. And we often have this thing called the jollof wars. It's essentially which country has the best taste in jollof rice. The loudest people are usually Nigerians and Ghanaians. You know, you hear Sierra Leoneans as well. Um, to your point, uh, you know, 
<laughs> Senegalese don't get a lot of credits, but they certainly were, were, you know, I mean, from the Wolof region and that's where the jollof comes from. But yeah, I mean, it's a form of rice. It's a rice-based dish and it's just really delicious. One of our signature dishes in Nigeria. All right, Tayo, what is one book maybe that has significantly impacted you over the years you'd most recommend people should read? Mastery by Robert Greene. And I, I think it's a, I'm a big learner. I, you know, I, I like to read, write, and I'm a professor you know, whenever I can be. And it's just a unique study of how people master things in life and how they learned from afar or directly. And I think it's something that uh, everyone should, should read. All right. Who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you'd most love to have dinner with, just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation? Trevor Noah. I follow Trevor Noah. He's a comedian, in case you're on, in the audience, you might not know him, but he was former host of The Daily Show, love his book, Born a Crime. But I like, I've always enjoyed his way of thinking and navigating complex ideas. And so I think it'd be a fascinating dinner. I agree. That would be an amazing dinner. Yeah. All right. Tayo, knowing everything that you know now, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Tayo? Be patient. 18-year-old Tayo was very, you know, very eager and nervous <laughs> about whether he will be accepted. And so I'll just tell him to be patient that, you know, you're, you're doing the right things. You know, whatever mistake you make is going to be a part of your story and, and just... Never let anyone tell your story more than you. All right. Of all the places that you've now traveled, what are three of your favorite destinations you'd most recommend people should check out? Well, we already brought up Lagos. Lagos is, you know, home for me. It's my hometown. I think Santorini, for sure. And I got to be in Bangkok briefly, and I thought it was, I loved it. I got to go back. Those would be the three places. All right, Tayo, what are your top three bucket list destinations, places you have not yet been highest on your list you'd most love to see? I want to go to Egypt, do, do like a, an entire tour of the country. I wanted to do Singapore or Malaysia and then Australia. Awesome. I spent about a year in Cairo. So when you're ready to plan that trip... Definitely. Where have you not been? You've been Hit everywhere. Up, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have been traveling the world for a while now. So, yeah, man. Oh, Brazil. I should have said Brazil as well. Sorry. Duh. <laughs> There's another one. But yes. I'm going back to Brazil, man. I've been three times and that's usually right at the very top of my list as well. But I'm going in December, man. I'm going to uh, Salvador de Bahia where I have not been before. This guy. Well, amazing. This is great. <laughs> so excited, man. All right, brother, we're down to the final two questions, and these are the most important questions of this interview. Okay. The, <laughs> the first one is that I am going to ask you to put people on to Afrobeats and to name your top five Afrobeat artists that people can find and start listening to. And maybe as you're putting those together, if that's not a list that rolls right off the top, can you share a little bit about 
Afrobeats. Like for me, it was amazing. That was actually the primary impetus for me to go to Nigeria. Like 2018, I had spent time in East Africa and I was going to clubs in Kampala and Nairobi and stuff. And I was just shazamming all this music, making playlists. And I'm looking all these people up and the majority of them are all from Nigeria. I was like, man, I have got to go to Nigeria. And so for me, that was like a huge part of it. But then while I was there, I went to the Fela Kuti shrine and I was really kind of immersing in like the, the lineage and the history of Afrobeats and, and how it got to where it is today and stuff. And it's just a truly spectacular art form. But can you share a little bit just from your perspective about what Afrobeats mean to you? And then you can put people onto your top five artists. I mean, Afrobeats has evolved, right? It was initially Afrobeat by Fela, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's a mix of what we call high life and, and jazz. And, and Fela Kuti was the originator of it. Afrobeats has become this umbrella term for music coming out of a lot of West Africa. And, it, you know, it mixes a lot of sounds, right? Contemporary music, there's just, just some raps and dancehalls, R&B. But it's one of the fastest growing genres of music. And the diaspora has really, really invaded the American airwaves now. And I'm, I'm always really proud because I remember the, the roots of some of the artists growing up. And I guess that segues into the top five. So for anyone, the, the biggest three are, you know, I just want to give you the biggest three. If you're just thinking of starting, we have, you know, Burner Boy, which you mentioned, there's WizKid and there's Davido. Some people call him Davido, Davido, whichever one usually goes by both. So those are like the, the three biggest but Afrobeats artist, but I also want to put people on a few other people. There's there's a lady called Ira Star. I really like. I love the sound, and I think you know she's one you should check out. And then there's Rima, and so th- th- that will round out the five for me. But I mean, there's, there's so many. If you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you start with those five and make a playlist, and you're on Spotify or something, it will start feeding you other artists, and you can just discover all sorts of amazingness. So dive into it and just start listening, and it is just an incredible journey. All right, Tayo, we've come to the final question of this interview. I am about to ask you to name your top five hip-hop MCs of all time. As you know, I was a hip-hop DJ back in the 90s. Oh, you are. Yeah, you see, you're... you're (laughs) This is always one of my very favorite questions to ask people. And before you name your five, can you share a little bit about what hip-hop means to you and why you love it? I love and embrace all forms of black culture. And one of the biggest exports of black culture when, you know, when I was young was, was, was just hip hop, right? You know, we'd listen to bad boys music. We'll listen to Biggie recipes, Pac recipes, you know, Snoop, all these things, West coast, East coast. And I remember, you know, <laughs> you know, just, just loving just the different cadences. And then, you know, you, you've got the diplomats and you got <laughs> everyone, you know, with different style and like, oh, they're the groups and all that. And so it was always nice seeing how people told stories about their experiences. As a poet, you know, I always loved the lyricist the most. So that would, that would be how my list will be populated. <laughs> but <laughs> but yes, I, I love to dance as well whenever I can, but the lyricists and the with my favorites. So, yeah. All right. Tayo, who you top five? 
Oh gosh! Look, look, look! I'm just going to preface it because I know it's going to start some kind of. <laughs> look, these are just my favorites. Okay, I'm. You don't have to like. This is a person. No, and just to contextualize the question so people understand, and I do give this context. This is a personal question. These are the MCs that most impacted you as a person. These are not the most commercially successful or most influential or any of that stuff. This is for Tayo. Roxon, yes, who were your you. favorite five MCs? <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to start off with one that I feel like is underlooked a lot. His name is Lupe Fiasco. I think the coolest album is one of the most, I mean, impressive body of works concept albums just ever put together. Just you know, loved everything from the cadence to the flow to the delivery, just incredible. I mean, then you got Kendrick Lamar, arguably, you know, my favorite or up there. I just you know. K dot to me is uh, I think is an anomaly and in a chameleon with this these ability to just <laughs> go in and out of different styles. This contemporary J Cole, especially in the last few years, just just the consistency of his work. And some people might you know like to give this guy a lot of a crap, but Eminem is undeniable. I mean, I don't even un- look. Eminem is an alien to me. <laughs> I just think even just. I, I love that he pays respect to the to the community, but I the the speed of delivery of what he says sometimes is is just is interesting, and um, I think it's it leaves one to be desired. And then Rhapsody is my favorite female MC. I think uh, she's another under underlooked MC, but I mean she's just up there to me. And if you're looking for Nigerian rappers, there's a guy called Mi. So yeah. Amazing. And you saw that Cole is featured on the new Burna Boy album. Of course. <laughs> of course, I did. Which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It, what, Which is so amazing. As, by the way, are RZA and Jizza of the Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, it is a spectacular album. So special. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Tile, that's amazing, brother. This conversation has been so special, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I want you to let folks know how they can find you, follow you on social media, get your book, listen to your podcast. How do you want people to come into your world? So thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate this, Matt. This has been a, a great pleasure. And uh, you can find me anywhere if you type Tyroxon. So Google T-A-Y-O-R-O-C-K-S-O-N. My website is Tyroxon.com. My book is Use Your Difference to Make a Difference. And my podcast is As Told by Nomads. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode. There you're going to find direct links to everything that we've discussed on this episode and all the ways to find and connect with Tayo. Brother, this was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure and duty. Thank you. All right. Good night, everybody. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a final reminder to subscribe to the Maverick Show's Monday Minute email newsletter. No long articles here, just three bullet points that I put together for you and drop into your email inbox every Monday that you can consume in under 60 seconds. You can subscribe at themaverickshow.com slash newsletter. Again, that's themaverickshow.com slash newsletter. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick and
Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.